John chapter 2, as we make our way through the gospel of John, Jesus went to a wedding. I was thinking as I was studying this portion of scripture, all the weddings I've been in, not just as a pastor and before that as a musician, but as a little boy, for some reason, I must have been the only one of age to be the ring bearer. There was a string of time there when I was the ring bearer, and I don't know how many weddings. I had a bunch of cousins that got married at the same time. And then my oldest sister, I was the ring bearer in her wedding. And I remember uh, I got to the point where finally I just went asked right in the middle of the rehearsal. Someone said, does anybody have any questions? And I was sitting there with my little pillow. I guess I was about four years old. I said, yes, where are the rings? I was supposed to be the ring bearer. It was all a big sham. There were no rings on that pillow. And uh, I I thought that this was not a a legitimate operation. If they were not going to let me carry the rings, why go through all the the rigmarole? But a wedding in this day and time was a major event. Uh, Quite unlike uh, our days, I mean, you might think it is a big event, but weddings would last are the celebrations of the marriage. And we have a newlywed couple here, and they're smiling uh, not just a day or just, uh, you know, the rehearsal and then the wedding and maybe a reception. These events in Bible times would last at least a week. And, uh, gentlemen, it was the groom's responsibility to provide for the festivities. Quite a change on things there. And uh, it was unthinkable. In fact, it could be that the bride's family if they were embarrassed by there not being enough food and refreshments and it ran out before the week event you know all the aunts and uncles and people from all over the place would come and here's a case in point Uh, jesus has just called these six disciples to him jesus was invited to the wedding and they come along you know how they're also comes that come along people come along to weddings sometimes they might not have sent in the rsvp but they're there anyway and uh, all kinds of situations and so it was unthinkable to run out of refreshments and in fact i have read that the bride's family could break the marriage agreement the betrothal if such a thing happened or there could be a suit filed because of it now, I'm just telling you that, the, that when we read about a marriage, this was quite an ordeal. And uh, we can see the embarrassing. It was unthought of for the bride's uh, family to be embarrassed publicly by there not being enough provision for the week. So that's the background of the setting here. On the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. Often during this time, marriages would take place on Wednesday. And the groom and his entourage would go to the bride's house where she was waiting. And he would go and get her and they would come and there would be a ceremony that would take place and uh, to signify them pledging their, their loyalty and faithfulness to one another. When the Holy Spirit records for us anything in the scripture, it is to be noted. And I want you to first of all notice the third day. I believe this is significant because... The, the number three, the third day, is representative of the Holy Spirit and the day of resurrection. The third day in creation, on that day, the earth emerged from the watery grave. The waters subsided and, and the barren earth became a clothed in vegetable life on the third day. The Bible tells us that on the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. The guests would stay the week, 
people would come and celebrate. No doubt the wedding party was related to Mary because she was there and she plays a key role in this event. Some have surmised it was a relative of the family since Mary was there. Could it have been one of Jesus' brothers or sisters who were marrying? We know that the Bible speaks of his other siblings. Someone, no doubt, close to the family. And Mary is there. Jesus has already begun his ministry, and they invite Jesus and summon him to come. The mother of Jesus is said to already be there and not called or invited, and Jesus and his disciples are there. And the fact that Mary comes to the Lord about the problem at hand shows that she must have been part of the, the, those sponsoring or putting it on or had some key part in this wedding celebration. Our Lord here puts honor and esteem upon marriage and the marriage ceremony and the celebration. Not only did he attend this wedding, he chose this specific event to perform his very first miracle. We might note here there's no mention made of Joseph here who must already by now be dead. The last time we hear of Joseph is that when they came to celebrate Passover when Jesus was a 12-year-old boy, you remember they left him and were on their entourage going back home and they they realized that they did not have Jesus with them. They went back and found him there reasoning and debating with the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders. We hear of Joseph not again and hear this mention of Mary being at this no doubt family wedding The next time we mention here of Mary is, of course, by John at the cross where he commits the keeping of his mother uh, to John and uh, no mention of Joseph is made, so no doubt he is dead and not in the picture here. In in John's gospel record, the the first recorded miracle here in John chapter 2 is of a wedding, and the last recorded miracle we might note is in chapter 11 at a funeral. I want to go back there and just again, though, mention the third day. A.W. Pink says for almost 2,000 years, remember two, a day is, is a thousand years of the Lord and a thousand years is, is a day. For almost 2,000 years, Israel has been without a king, without a home, without a priest. But the second day is almost ended. And when the third day dawns, their renaissance shall come. Well, the scripture says his coming is near, doesn't it? He's even at the door. We notice there in verse 3, when they wanted wine or when there was need for the refreshment, all of it was used up. The mother of Jesus, and John does not call her by her name. He refers to to this in a very specific way, said unto him, they have no wine. And Jesus saith unto her, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. That's an interesting phrase because he would tell us over in chapter 7, verse 2. Now, the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence, and go into Jerusalem, Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to thy world. His brothers were giving him a prescription, they giving him advice, telling him how to manage his ministry, and they were out of line. 
Jesus answers, for neither did his brethren believe in him. Here, they're giving advice, but they did not believe in him. If you are really who you say you are, go and present yourself in a very public way and do it this way. Isn't it something how the unsaved world can give advice or think they can give advice to the people of God about how to do the Lord's work? And sadly, it seems the Lord's people have been listening to that advice and doing it but we have the, the record here of how things should be done. But Jesus answered and said to them, My time is not yet come. It's not time. But your time is all, always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hateth me, because I testify of it that the works thereof of evil. Go ye up into this feast. You go to the feast, he tells his brothers. Not up yet, I go not yet up into this feast. For my time is not yet full come. When you see our Lord in the Gospels, He is always on time. He, unlike me and unlike you, is never in a hurry. He is never out of sorts. He is never wondering what to do next or why He didn't do this. He is never hastening anywhere. He is methodically moving and going in in accord with the will of His Father He's always on time. He's always where he's supposed to be. And he's never not on time. Even when people think he's not on time, as the family of Lazarus, when they sent for him, when Lazarus was sick, and they said, come, you can heal him. And Jesus, the Bible says, purposefully waited. And he came. Why? That God might be greatly glorified because he chose to raise Lazarus from the dead and to tell us with all of authority, I am the resurrection and the life. Because I live, you shall live also. Aren't you glad he waited to do that, to tell us those words? How we hang on those words. He is the resurrection. Those of you who are grieving this morning, because I live, ye shall live also. That is a promise from the Son of God. And just to show he means what he says, he says, Lazarus, come forth. His sister says he stinks, he's rotting, he's been dead four days now. Lazarus comes forth, and then he says, unloose him. Take the swabs, the linen, linen swabs that have been embalmed him, and take them away. And Lazarus is resurrected. Jesus is on time. And he says here, when his mother makes a request. Now, there's some conversation, some ideas of, of why Mary came to Jesus at this time and why she made this request and why he responded to her in the way that he did. We, the scripture tells us that this is, in verse 11, this is the first miracle he performs. And so we can assume that Mary, although the angels t- told her at his, when, he, when she was told that she was going to have the Son of God and all the mysterious and miraculous and unbelievable things. He pondered these things in her heart. She no doubt had not ever seen him do perform a miracle, and yet she knew that he was the Son of God, and we can assume by that, not assume, but know that he, he never disobeyed her. Can you imagine having a child like that? That would be perplexing, wouldn't it, mothers, to have a son who did everything you told them to do. Could it be that Mary was so used to the obedience of Jesus Christ that when she came to him in his adult capacity, as a mother would to her son, and suggest that possibly he could do something about the situation, he answers here in what some consider a very curt and blunt way. 
although uh, it, it could be said that he is making a point here, but his way of addressing her is not rude at all. His use of the word woman there, he'll use it again. We fast forward to the cross and he'll say, Woman, behold thy son. It is not unlike us saying today, Ma'am. It was not a term of disrespect as he, that he's addressing his mother. Now, in our society, if you say, Woman, what are you talking about? That might not come across as nice and kind as it should be, especially an adult son saying to his mother, Woman, but... If you said, ma'am, I want you to know that my hour has not yet come. It's not time yet to do this. Jesus is very pointedly letting Mary know that his relationship with her is changed. He is not just her son. He is the Savior of the world with a work to do, and he will do it. He will not be hindered, and he will not be told what to do, not even by his own mother. He must do the work of his father. And he makes that point very clear. For this end I am come. Jesus was very well aware of what his work was. What he was to accomplish. That the cross lay before him. That the redemption of his people was out on his shoulders. And that his work alone could accomplish that. Whatever obstacles, whatever things were laying in his way, put across his path, he will circumvent them They will not overcome him. He will go to Calvary and he will lay down his life, not surrender his life as a martyr, but in the Father's appointed moment, he will lay down his life and he assures them, I will also take it up again. No one but God could do such a thing. He says there in verse 4, My hour is not yet come. Jesus is living by heaven's calendar. I'd like to ask you this morning, are you? I bought my first 2016 calendar yesterday, the day before yesterday. And uh, just to look at that number on the top of the calendar seems surreal. 2016. I have never gotten used to writing 2-0 instead of 19. Uh, I'm still kind of having trouble with that. Lo, these 15 years after the the change of the millennium. I'm stubborn about those things, you know. I like the 1900s. (laughs) And my children say, I must. I live in the early, early 1900s. But uh, the thing that I was asked, wondering, am I living by heaven's calendar? Oh, it's right to plan and order our days. But I hope you have come to the point, as I have at this point in my life, as I early in the morning, sit and write down on a little three-by-five card the things I hope to accomplish, the Lord willing. We ought to always say, the Lord willing. Then I always pray, Lord, please interrupt this calendar, this schedule, however you want to, because when I lay my head on the pillow tonight, I want to know that I did the Lord's will today and not Chris Lamb's will. You know, you can do the right thing in the wrong way. You can do the right thing in an untimely way. You can say the right thing at the wrong time. And uh, we have to be careful that we're doing the Lord's will in His way, in His bidding, using the words that He would have us to use in the right way. He's living by His Father's clock, not by His. No moment is wasted in Jesus' life. He never wastes anything, not even when they take up the fragments from the little boy's lunch. Nothing is wasted. Nothing is rushed. All is accomplished according to God's will and timing. That's my first point, the event. We're at a wedding, 
and I hope you came dressed and are ready for the wedding. We will not have refreshments at the wedding at the end of this event, but that's where we are this morning, at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. My wife and I had the privilege of attending the most unusual wedding I've ever attended on Friday. It was at 11 o'clock in the morning, and when I first heard about the hour of that wedding, I thought, well, that's odd, uh, this wedding. The woman was getting married, and she had... Uh, had a ministry to the Alzheimer's patients, and it's an adult daycare where these Alzheimer's patients come. And so that was the hour. She's the director of this ministry, a dear Christian lady. And uh, her bridesmaids were ladies that come. They were there. They came in and had them in their wheelchairs and uh, with their bouquets. And as the bride came down the aisle, she kissed each one of them on the cheek and said, you're so precious to me. The second, the, the bridesmaid right next to the maid of honor, and listen, the, the flower girl was a 90-something-year-old lady. She came down the aisle with the leaves, the, the, the fall leaves, and sprinkled them. She did it just hunched and frail as a sparrow. And then she sat down, and her husband, they'd been married almost 70 years, and led in prayer. But when the bride got to the, the woman just next to the end, and kissed her, she started speaking in French. She knew eight languages. And in her dementia, all of that had been uh, hidden. And she began, and the bride just stayed there and hugged her and hugged her. And she said, oh. And she was, and the lady knew that, she, that the, the bride was shocked. She began to speak some more. I don't know what she was saying in French. And the bride didn't know what she was saying in French. But she was excited about the occasion. Well, we are at the event, it's a wedding, but I want you to, to see the means. God always uses things to accomplish his will. And usually it's what is at hand or in hand. Remember when Moses asked him, when God said, go and set my people free? That's not a little job to do, is it? What an errand. You're going to set my people free. And Moses said, how, how can I do this? Who, who am I going to tell them? What am I going to use? And the Lord said, what do you have in your hand? That shepherd's rod was going to become the rod of God. And God always starts, even when he's about to perform a miracle, we see most often in the scripture, he will use ordinary means to bring it to pass, the supernatural to pass. The Lord here used what is available. And that's encouraging to me. And I try to teach our staff here. We, we pray. They will come to me regularly and say, Pastor, we need this and we need that. And the first thing they'll tell you is I say, well, let's pray about it. And we usually pray right then and there and ask the Lord to provide according to our, our, all of our need, according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And then the second question we ask, well, what do we have already that might could be used or adapted? or We start with what we know and what we have. And here in the situation, the Lord used what was available as he always does. And we ought to always ask ourselves a question when we have a problem. What do I have? What's in my hand? What do I have? We often focus on what we don't have, don't we? And that brings such distress and anxiety. But what do we have? He's already blessed us so much, hasn't he? He's already given us provision beyond, beyond imagination. Jesus never performed a miracle to entertain or amuse. Never. Always he performed the miracle to meet specific needs. The wedding couple 
would have been stigmatized the rest of their lives. It may be kind of hard for us to understand, but in that culture, it was an unthinkable thing. And our Lord so graciously intervenes with his first miracle at a beautiful occasion and saved a couple from being mortally embarrassed. Our Lord cares about the minor, so-called minor things of our lives. In fact, there are no little things to the Lord. A sparrow flitting from bush to bush. The number of hairs on our head. I'm to the point now, it's always interesting, I will see people who are a little taller than me, they start looking and seeing if that's gray or bald. I can tell they're looking and make examining there. The recording angel of Chris Lamb doesn't have a whole lot to keep up with. But think of little things like the number of hairs on our heads. The names of all the stars. Wine was the staple beverage alongside water, of course. And because of the heat and the lack of refrigeration, the fruit juice had the tendency to ferment, causing the possibility of drunkenness. And to avoid that, wine in Bible times were, were commonly diluted with water to one-third to, or to, to one-tenth of its strength. Mary's request showed, though, lack of full spiritual discernment. Son, and although she doesn't say it in that way, she came to him and asked, they have no wine. That sounds, when a mother says something like that to a son, that's, to be interpreted as not a request but a, a, a command. They don't have, if my mother said, came to me, they have no wine, that means go find some. Do something about it. You can do something about it. And that prompts our Lord's response to her Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Now, we marvel though that he, he did perform the miracle but not at that exact second. Do you see how exact our Lord is? He does perform the miracle. He doesn't say, I won't do it. It wasn't time for it at that exact second. How much time passed? How long did he wait until he performed the miracle? Here, the servants are told, Mary turns to the, to the servants, and if you don't get anything else from the message this morning, I hope you'll underline and mark and memorize the latter part of verse 5. Someone has said this sums up the whole duty of a believer. Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. I preached and used this text at a graduation ceremony, and I've told the graduates from before the text was announced, I'm going to give you all the advice you will ever need in life. They always look at me like, how in the world could you do such a thing? How do you know so much? You'll never need any other advice if you put this advice that I'm going to give you at the very first. And I give them that text. Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Does that not sum up the whole matter of living for the Lord? If he says, go get water and put it in pots as mundane as that may seem, do you know much of the Christian life is the ordinary daily round? You have so much said about miracles, and our God certainly is a God of miracles. He can do whatever He pleases. As we've mentioned, He does not do miracles to entertain. He does it to show forth His glory and His grace and to provide needs. The greatest miracles that are ever transacted are the, those who come to Christ as Lord and Savior. The regeneration of the dead heart and soul. Whatsoever he saith unto you, 
do it. I wonder if some under the sound of my voice are missing the blessing, the overflow blessing of the Lord because you have stopped just short of doing exactly what He said. The Lord gives all kinds of instruction in His Word. Sometimes we reason away. Well, water, they need wine. Water is not what they ask for. Why go get water and fill these pots when what we need is wine? And some might say, I'm just not going to do that. I, I, I meet people all the time who say, Pastor, I know what the Word says, but these are my circumstances. This is how I see it. And so they give me all their, their, their so-called logical reasonings for why they're going to disobey a precept in God's Word. Whatsoever He says unto you, do it. There were set... There, verse 6 tells us, six water pots of stone. I I want us to look here at the command to obey. The means that the Lord uses are human, as they often are. We often pray for the miraculous when the human, what we can do is at hand. The means were human, but the result was seen to be divine. These water pots were, were common and uh, Jewish homes, and they had clay pots and they had stone pots. In their mindset, the stone pot, pots were less contaminated or would not be contaminated like the earthen pots that were used for so many things. And because of this event, a large event, these uh, firkins here in the Old English, or that measurement, they were about 20 or 30 gallons each. So you have these six water pots, each of them holding almost 30 gallons. And I want you to know, how did you get water in that day and time? You didn't just turn on the spigot. Every drop of water that was brought into that house had to be gone to the well, and usually at the town square, and gathered there and brought back. So can you see the trips that were taken? They would, buy, they would use these little ewers or like gallon jars and go fill them up and bring them. That, by the way, that would be a stone jar too because whatever water they put in the, the stone pots could not be contaminated. The Jews had to ceremoniously wash not only themselves and their hands before they did anything, but because of this feast was at hand, all of the implements of serving the food had to be ceremonially washed in that water that came out of those water pots. And now he tells them, go get uh, these, these uh, water and fill the pots. How many trips would that have been? We don't know how many servants there were, but we do know this. That was footwork, wasn't it? Common, ordinary labor, which is most of what life is, isn't it? The daily round. The so-called mundane. But there's nothing mundane about doing what the Lord tells us to do. It is an honor. I'm told that Ruth Bell Graham had... Uh, Billy Graham's wife had calligraphied over her kitchen sink divine services performed here three times a day. Nothing is common when it's our duty to do. And we can do whatever to the honor and glory of the Lord. We can bring the Lord's uh, amen and doxology into every area of life. All ground is holy ground of the child of God. Giving a cup of cold water in His name or going at his command, and filling these pots, this arduous work. Can you imagine going back and forth and back and forth, pouring your little bit in and going back and getting another gallon or whatever the capacity was until you filled up? That would be 30 trips for one servant per pot. I don't know how many were at hand, but I do know this. Mary said, whatever he says, do it. And I know this, that Jesus 
tells them to fill the water pots with water. And these were good servants. Not just because they obeyed, but the Holy Spirit tells us they filled the pots half full. Look in verse 7, the latter part. They filled them up to the brim. Not only was their obedience, they obeyed what the Lord said and, and fervently obeyed it. They went to the very edge, filled it to the brim. I'm wondering about my service and your service. Is it just what we have to do? We mark it off the list. I did this, but we go beyond the call, beyond the second mile. Our Lord says in that parable of the servant whose master came in and told him to provide for him. And he says, don't say when we've done all that we should do that we are profitable. you're unprofitable servants if you only do that which is your duty to do. The blessing comes. To those of us who serve the Lord, the blessing comes when we go beyond. It's our human nature to say, what can I do to get by? What can I do? I remember in college when the, the teacher would give out the syllabuses and you figured out what it took to make an A, B, C, or D. You know, how, what can I do to get by? But here, in the matter of serving the Lord, the blessing comes when we lavish upon the Lord as the lady did with her alabaster box and broke it at his feet and gave it all un, unrelenting, graciously. We lavish our time and our talents upon him. In Mark 7, it tells us that the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, observing the tradition of the elders. 20 to 30 gallons each, filled to the brim with water. Nothing added. The reason the Holy Spirit marks that they filled it to the brim with water, no one could say, oh, there must have been something in there already. They've already mixed it. So, that, no, the Everyone there knew that they were absolutely empty and they filled it to the brim so that when the miracle took place, and this was the freshest, best wine of all, that nothing that humans did, they knew that the people went and got the water from the well, they watched and poured in, filled it to the brim, and then the miracle takes place. 180 gallons. I want to point out to you that this is a, what we would call a creative miracle. In fact, almost all of our miracles of our Lord are something only God could do, changing something from, from that to something else. More than enough was lavished upon them. See the graciousness of our Lord. He not only supplied the need, but He gave more than enough for this is a generous wedding present to this precious couple. We see there the miracle in verse 11. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested his, forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. We see here our Lord showed his glory, for only he can do such things. This is the Messiah. This is the Son of God who caused this miracle to take place without any words recorded, without any physical um, gestures given. He simply told them what to do. And when they went and he told them to draw forth and take it to the, the MC, the master of ceremonies, to take him to uh, some of the wine, the miracle had already transformed. Silently, gloriously, miraculously, his disciples believed on him. There's no record of other miracles being performed at this time. 
John 20, verse 30 says, And many other signs truly did Jesus after this in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. We notice there that he tells us they believed on him. This beginning of miracles prompted them to believe on Him. It was designed to show and prove the Lord's glory and His deity and to convince His disciples, these who have now left their their places of business, they've left their vocations, they're following Him. He gives them this at this first event to show you that He was all that He proclaimed to be, all that they believed Him to be. They were not following Him in vain. This who told them to fill those water pots was the very Son of God who alone could could cause this water to turn to wine. No one who follows Jesus Christ will follow Him in vain. I have been at the deathbed of many, many believers. I have never once, ever, in my 36 years of ministry, been at the bedside of a believer who said, I wish I hadn't followed Jesus Christ. Never once have I heard that. I have heard of regrets. I have heard people said, I wish I'd followed him more. I wish I'd followed the Lord more closely. Sometimes people review their lives and say things, but I've never heard a true believer say, I wish I had not lived this life or followed Jesus Christ. The essential thought here on this believing on is that of unreserved transfer of trust from oneself to someone else. When you see that throughout the Gospels, when it says they believed on Him, there is not just some mental assent of facts that this is Jesus Christ, but those who are truly saved are those who have transferred their absolute trust from themselves to Jesus Christ. And that would be the question this morning. That would be the marked difference between someone who is just religious and who, who knows these things and is truly a follower of Jesus Christ. Have you transferred the absolute trust from yourself, your own doings, your own ways to Jesus Christ? What a miracle here. This miracle pictures conversion. We run out of our resources I'm sure the, the groom's parents figured up how many people would be there, how many had RSVP'd, and they calculated, well, if everyone brought two or three extra, they, don't you know they did everything they could because it was such a stigma, such an important event. They did everything they could to provide, and yet it wasn't enough. And so it is in life. We, we think we've got it figured out. We try to do our best. We, we live right, or whatever that means, and we come at, at some point we find out it's not enough. As the songwriter says, when we come to the end of our hoarded resources, at some point, young person, you may not have gotten there yet. Young businessman, you might not have gotten there yet. Young bride, you might not have gotten there yet. But I will tell you, at some point, you'll reach the point where you realize, I'm out. I don't have it. Is this all there is to it? Because if it is, it's a horrible, cruel joke. There's nothing left. 
I can't do this. That's the happiest day in a person's life if they turn from their from themselves and their circumstances and turn to absolutely relying on Jesus Christ. We realize we have nothing. Nothing to meet, to meet the demands of a holy, perfect God. And we've kept trying to come up with our own righteousness and we've pointed our own deeds, our religion, our background, and still we find at some point... The Holy Spirit speaks to us and says, you're coming up short. You've been weighed in the balances and you've come up short. And on top of that, that righteousness that you have believed in and leaned on, those deeds that you've done, you rudely find out in God's sight they're just filthy, putrid rags. And then we're really alarmed because we thought it was pretty good. You mean, Lord, that that the best I can come up with is absolute stench in your sight. Repulsive. Do you know the very best a religious person can come up with if they they did the best they could all their life stinks in the nostrils of God. So we have a major problem. We've run out. And our righteousness doesn't measure up. We're empty. Bankrupt, no resources, no joy. Wine is a symbol in the scripture of the joy of the Lord, his, his happiness, his, his joy and peace that he pours out lavishly upon the believing heart. Not that every day is cloud nine, not that there's no problems, but underneath it all is the joy of the Lord is our strength. And the peace that God gives us that the world never gave and cannot take away, but we're empty. We must come to Him and unreservedly do what He says. Do you know what the Scripture says? The very first message our Lord preached, do you know what that message was? A very simple message. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent of what? Our sin. Our sinfulness. And believe, transfer all of our leaning upon Him and from ourselves to Him. Repent of your sin and believe unreservedly upon Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. Jesus always gives the best and fills to the fullest. You see, sin delivers for a season, but then we're empty. We come back and we need more. Those of you who've been saved out of a life of addiction or those kinds of things, or any of you who know anything about sin, knows that yes, sin is enjoyable up to a point and for a time, and then what? Empty. Jesus lavishes here the best. He gives the best for last. Leah's saying it. All of this for those who follow the Lord. Oh, the blessings of this life. Those of you who know him, can you not say amen right there? The blessings. You couldn't put a price tag on any of them. All of this in heaven too. The best is yet to come. He always gives the best and feels to the full. But the question is, and I come back to what I told you, is the most important words I'll say here today. Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Have you? Have you done that? Have you fully obeyed Him? The grief of a pastor's heart, of those who followed Jesus Christ up to a point, and they fall short. 
or for those who hear the gospel and begin attending to the gospel and hearing it, and they, as the writer of the Hebrews urged them to go on and believe on Jesus Christ, they come, they're blessed, they hear the worship, but they fall short. Have you fully obeyed the Lord? Mark sixteen sixteen says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Some have repented. They believed on the Lord, but they've not fully followed Him. Some have not obeyed the Lord's commands, and, and they don't have the fullness of His blessing, this lavish overflow that we, we see displayed here at this simple country wedding in the first century. Some have not united with this church, a local body of believers. I never will forget a woman sitting in my office one day, and her church had moved, had located. They closed up and moved to another place. And I never forget she sat there and said, I'm never going to, I'm going to come here, I'm going to attend here, but I'm never going to join your church, and I'm never going to join another church as long as I live because I've been hurt. That was her, her reasoning for her position. And I remember as kindly as I could, asking the dear lady, are you going to justify disobeying our Lord's teachings because of some of his servants may not have been all they should be? Our Lord loved the church and gave himself for it. We certainly should do the same, shouldn't we? So should we. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, do you see, those were his physical brethren. Mary and Joseph had other children after Jesus was born because the Holy Spirit distinguishes his brethren and his disciples. And they continue there not many days. He's on the move. There's things to be done. And our Lord will fulfill all that the Lord, the Heavenly Father, has laid out for him to do so that when he comes to the end of his life, he will be able to say, Lord, Father, I have done all that you've commanded me to do. I have finished your work. May I just close with this and say, you too will come to the end of your days at some point. There will come a time where the doctors say there's nothing that can, else that can be done or of great age or whatever it is the circumstances. You will know that no, maybe that your time is at hand and I ask you on this side of it, because we always make decisions now while we can, not to the, some people so foolishly say, well, one day I'm going to get all this straightened out. One of these days I'm going to get this figured out. And I've heard, heard people say, Pastor, one of these days I'm going to believe on Jesus Christ and commit my life to Him because I know He is the Savior, but I've got, and they've got business to take care of. And the devil loves procrastination. His favorite sin is not drunkenness or adultery. Or the, his favorite sin is if he can get you to procrastinate then he's got half his job done. Some more convenient day, the song says, on thee I'll call. You may not. Salvation is of the Lord. It's not of you whatsoever. You don't call the shots with God. You're not in control. As Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar when he was called before him, there is a God in heaven. And what he meant by that, whatever he says, he will do and bring it to pass. Because you've enjoyed the privilege of hearing the gospel, and whether you realize it today, you've had the, gospel, the, the privilege of hearing the gospel, and we'll stand and give an account one day for this very hour. 
But do not, do not foolishly think if the rich fool said, I'll do this and I'll do that. And the Holy Spirit says he did not know that that day his soul was going to be required of him. Please don't believe the lie of Satan that says that you can do whatever you want to. And finally at the end, after you've lived however you want to, repent and believe the gospel. That's one of the biggest lies. It is absolutely not true. We have one deathbed account recorded in the scriptures. The thief on the cross. We have far more other accounts of those who refused to believe on Jesus Christ and died without Him. You see, the Lord has said, by the foolishness of preaching, He will save those that believe. He's ordained this very method. This is not the only way He saves. He's sovereign. He can do whatever He wants to. But one of the means that He uses is the explanation, the public proclamation of his word. And whenever that's done, not because this servant is doing, but whenever it is done, the Holy Spirit always accomplishes his work. And so we know that the Spirit graciously shows the Savior in our need for him. And I would ask you as we close this service today, how do you stand? Where are you? Have you obeyed the Lord? Whatsoever He says unto you, do it. Have you done that? If not, I would ask the question, why not? The Savior's there ready with open arms saying, whosoever shall come to me, I will no wise cast out. What a promise. Whoever comes to Him, He will not cast out. He says that. Oh, would you believe on Jesus Christ? You don't have to come through a preacher or a church or anyone else. You go to Jesus Christ right where you are And believe on Him. Call out to Him. Commit yourself to Him. Lord, You saved me. I need a Savior. You said You'd be a Savior. Would you bow for prayer? Come every soul by sin oppressed. There's mercy with the Lord. And He will surely give you rest by trusting in His Word. For Jesus shed His precious blood, rich blessings to bestow, plunge now into the crimson flood that washes white as snow. Yes, Jesus is the truth, the way that leads you into rest. Believe in Him without delay, and you are fully blessed. Only trust Him. Only trust Him. Only trust Him now. He will save you. He will save you. He will save you now. Oh, what a blessed word. Would you not, those of you whom the Lord has spoken to, would you not open your heart right now to Him and say, Lord, I need you. Tell Him you've come to the end of your resources, that you're bankrupt, you've run out. You are through with the schemes and the efforts to do it your way. Would you go to Jesus Christ just now in the stillness of this hour and call out to Him? Tell Him that you're guilty, that you need a Savior. You deserve to to die and be eternally separated from Him, but He's promised to give a new heart. Ask Him for it. Believe on Him. Tell Him you can do nothing, but you cast yourself in His hands. Give yourself wholly over to Him.
Trust in the blood and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Lord, we commit this word to you and this hour to you. Would you accomplish by your spirit all that you've promised to do? In Jesus' name.